Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From America's farm to fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. Food should be essential. It's not like an add-on. Like if we talk about creating an environment for children to learn, food can't be this add-on, but it's a necessity. Children that are growing can't learn if they're hungry. It's just unreasonable. You need to be able to function and sit and take in knowledge. Thank you for continuing to listen and for raising Kale with me. Our next guest has made her career in social justice. A warning that her story includes traumatic events that may be triggering. These events fueled her drive to create a more equitable society. How does food connect to social justice? And what does that have to do with school lunch? We'll look at the connection between hunger, school lunch, and food justice, issues that have a disproportionate impact on Black and Brown Americans. Crystal Oriatha has spent her career fighting to improve her community. She's worked on policy, social justice, LGBTQ rights, education, and served on President Barack Obama's presidential campaign. She has lived in Washington, D.C. and Tanzania. Today, she's the Senior Director of Programs and Policy for the National Farm to School Network, which is a national network for folks working with school gardens, food literacy, and school food programs. She's raising kale all over the nation. Welcome to the show, Crystal Oriada. Thank you. I'm excited to join you. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I first want to talk about you. So your compass seems firmly pointed in the direction of justice. What lights that fire in your belly for this work? Mm, justice work. I think, I feel like I came out of the womb being an advocate for justice. <laughs> it shapes everything that I do. I uh, contributed that a lot to my upbringing and my parents. Um, really always telling me how it's our job to like fight and elevate for those that don't have the opportunity to fight and uplift their own voices. And at an early age, I just realized that we are at the mercy of those in power. Um, my dad was almost deported for this out of this country 
for a simple mistake. And I realized on his application process and we had to testify and we had to, um, you know, go in front of a judge and it was at his mercy of the ability for our, our family to stay together and for our, for him to value us. And it was his decision, his decision only. And in that moment, I just realized that there's people that in positions of power and if they don't have compassion and if they don't have um, an understanding for what justice and what fairness looks like, that it doesn't mean it's going to be distributed equally. And so that's really important to me to stand up for anyone that I feel is that doesn't have the power to speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves. And that's a powerful early memory. How old were you when that happened? Uh, I was probably in elementary, so I think it was maybe around 10 years old. Um, yeah, and it's always stuck with me because as I grew up, I just realized that everything of of who I am was kind of in that moment could have just changed the whole trajectory of our lives. Like, for example, if my mom didn't want to move with my dad and then I didn't have my father growing up or then we had to move out of this country, like everything could have just looked different. And it was all tied to that one tiny moment in time. And I think uh, that's what injustice sometimes looks like. It looks like this is one moment in time that can truly change the trajectory of someone's entire life. That's a great definition of injustice. Um, And you had another very early experience, very harrowing um, with the dark side of injustice. If you're comfortable, I'd love for you to share uh, share what that looked like in Texas when you were growing up. Yeah, so growing up, we had um, some neighbors that we didn't have maybe like the best relationship with. Um, grew up in the suburbs of Texas, a predominantly white community. We maybe had one other um, family of color in our neighborhood. And it started off when I was early on, one of the kids had made a comment about um you know, me being their slave if it wasn't for Martin Luther King Jr. And that kind of was like mm-hmm. the beginning of this like, tension between us and that neighbor. And then by the time I was in junior high, about to go into high school, our house burned down and there was a fire and it was unexpected. And, you know, the cause of it wasn't ever pinpointed, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of feelings that it was at the hands of our neighbors who stood out and laughed as our house was burning down um, and then made comments of like how there was a bubble on their car, so there was heat damage and how they wanted us to pay for it. Like so we were going through this moment that was just horrible and losing everything and our family pets had died in the fire and I was the only one home at the moment. So just like if someone hadn't um, come in to get me, you know, I would have just been asleep because I just happened to be home during the summer at that moment. And so that moment just made me realize as well just how um, hatred can fuel people to do the most unexcusable actions Mm -hmm. and how hate also can fuel people not to do things that make sense. Because I think a lot of times we think, well, someone wouldn't do that because it doesn't make sense based on our moral compass or what we believe in. Mm -hmm. But it made me realize that hatred um, makes people do things that doesn't make sense, things that don't seem reasonable. And so it's really hard to calculate how hate is going to manifest itself because it's built on something that doesn't make sense. It's built on something that's not real to begin with. Um, so it just made me know to never underestimate it and underestimate what 
people might do when they're fueled by hate. I appreciate you sharing that, and um, very sorry that that happened. It's um, it's hard to hear. I'm sure it was even harder to live through that moment. Um, but it feels like you have taken that and made it your life's work to ensure that these kinds of things don't happen to others, um, especially kids. And um, so, you know, your career accomplishments are many. Um, You've worked for President Obama's election campaign. Uh, You worked on a campaign to make smart cool. Um, Talk about some of your career highlights that you're most proud of. Yeah, I'm most proud of, I I would say, a few things. I'd say one, um, my work around ending the school to prison pipeline, I think, I always looked at education as an equalizer. It's the reason why I think so many people want to strip public education away in this country, because no matter your race, economic status, sexual orientation, education really is that opportunity for you to elevate yourself, your family, and your community out of circumstances. And so really looking at how do you end that school-to-prison pipeline where you're seeing a lot of public schools used as holding cells, preparing children for prison instead of as institutions that are really built to elevate them and uplift them and fill them uh, and create opportunities that are really equal. So looking at restorative justice practices, looking at removing armed officers from schools, looking at building community school pilot programs, that is really one highlight, I'd say, of my career. Um, The work I did when, as a uh, communications specialist, under contract with the Family Youth Service Bureau, specifically working around domestic violence and human trafficking and building out campaigns about awareness about how domestic violence manifests itself specifically with teens um, and LGBTQ relationships as well, and just really building out awareness um, for domestic violence and how that looks in certain communities where it's stereotyped to look different or not exist because of some norms that are associated um, with what it looks like for a relationship for two women or two men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say also my work around just Black Lives Matter movement and, and as a whole, uh, one of my best friends and colleagues, we founded this organization called PG Changemakers, and we've really moved our community to push uh, the conversation about how we interact, not just with police, but understanding that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, that means that Black voices matter, Black votes, Black education, Black wealth. It has to be this holistic conversation. And so we really work to expand the conversation to pass just our interaction with police, but to include all of these other touch points. And I'm really excited about the work that we've been able to do in that field. Congratulations. And, you know, way to keep the fire burning because all of that stuff is so important. And I think it's an interesting journey toward food, right? I think when Mm -hmm. we're eating a sandwich, um, we don't often think about our ham or our avocado being tied to social justice. Uh, But you've Mm -hmm. clearly made that connection in your career. You're now the senior director um, for programs and policy at the National Farm to School Network. So why this job and why now? Yeah, I think when I interviewed for this job, I think they thought, why this? Because my background is so like um, justice focused. And they asked me, I remember when we had conversations during the interview process, would I be satisfied with working for Farm to School? Because I did so much justice work. And I told them that I feel like this is justice work. I see how it connects easily. Because when you talk about access to food, I think sometimes people 
it or don't think about that as a justice issue, but I do see it. And I see the school as such a key touch point because I had been working with like community garden programs or access to even grocery stores in our community because we lived in what people would consider our coined like food deserts, but really is that conversation about food apartheid. But I said school was such an opportunity because if you look at schools as the hub, right? Every community has a has public school, right? So if we looked at how do we create access and touch points at schools to make sure that there's access to nutritious food, that, you know, fighting for access to universal meals so that everyone has free food. If you looked at also, you have farmer's markets at schools, food pantries at schools. There's so many opportunities to infuse access to food through the school system because they're a billion dollar budget. Every community has one. They're already seen as a hub of the community. So to me, it looked looked like an extension of the work that I I was already doing. And I felt like it was an opportunity to bring a a justice lens to a movement that some people didn't feel like it was a justice movement. But I think it is a justice movement. We just have to make sure that it's aligned with the values needs of the most impacted stakeholders. Absolutely. And you're you're using some words that I want to make sure we define for the listeners, Um, specifically, you know, food deserts, food apartheid, um, you know, talk about what those terms mean briefly. Yeah. So it's this idea and concept of, of not having access to food, right? So originally the the term food desert was like not having access to food, right? And the reason why a lot of people in, in the movement have gone away from using food desert for a couple of reasons. One, food deserts is a term that it's like a natural thing, right? A desert naturally occurs. But um, food deserts are purposely created. It's not a natural occurrence. So they, there was this tension about using a word that is naturally found in the environment and then attaching it to something that is systematically done to communities. And then also this notion of not having access to food. Is that really a true statement? Because a lot of these communities will have fast food, um, but they won't have access to affordable, um, fresh vegetables. So it's not the idea of no food. It's the idea of what type of food. And so that's when the movement really moved to to using food apartheid, um, which really comes into that idea of of systematically not giving access to certain types of foods in the communities. And like I live in what they would um, consider that we don't have a grocery store within a certain amount amount of miles from our neighborhood, um, which is fine for people that drive. But it's not for a lot of our senior citizens or people that don't have cars um, because they have to travel a lot further to ha- to get groceries. So the closest thing to those individuals is a CVS and a, and a dollar store. CVS is historically overpriced mm-hmm. for items that you pay half the price if you're at a traditional grocery store. And then you have dollar stores when you talk about processed food or low quality food. But a lot of people are using that as their grocery stores. And so I think that's what you see in those communities when you talk about the term uh, food desert or food apartheid. Yeah. And um, I think it's important to note that, you know, the USDA sort of defines food deserts uh, by zip code. And mm-hmm. when we think about schools, there are specific schools in certain zip codes that are disproportionately affected. And mm-hmm. we do see that there are also the schools that black and brown Americans attend. Exactly that. Exactly that. And I think it's 
kind of mapping the the argument that people are making about this is done systematically, right? Like it's not going to be by accident that we look at low access points to these fresh foods and vegetables or just grocery stores are predominantly low income or black and brown school district um, areas. And then those school districts also have a high number of students on free and reduced lunch, right? All of these things connect together and that those data points help tell the story of what a lot of community members, you know, just know as a reality, but those data points help back up um, the reality that a lot of communities are living in. Yeah. And you shared some very specific examples of some solutions and why school food in particular and the national school food program um, can be part of this solution. So share some of those things that you've seen, the farmers markets and, um, you know, what you're seeing through your work at the National Farm to School Network. Yeah, I think there's so many opportunities for schools to be a touch point. So you've seen some schools um, using, like I said, farmers markets. So they work with producers or food hubs, use their parking lots, either during the summer or during um, high season for farmers markets as a touch point. You had some schools that have gardens on site. And so they have kind of this um, fresh vegetable food pantry model where all of the fresh fe- vegetables and fruits that they grow, that they give out to the community. And some of them work with their local food banks to actually be a local site for a pantry where people needed um, fresh vegetables or fruits or um, processed foods, non-perishable items, that they can stock those on site. And a lot of times they're run um, during the weekends or after hours by community members and organizers. And then also the opportunity for universal meals, I think, is what a lot of organizations are talking about, because that's what we've seen right now with the waivers from USDA, was the opportunity to have essentially universal meals. Talk about what a universal meal is for folks that may not know what that is. Right. So universal meals is the idea that all food given at a school site would be free and accessible to all students. Right. So right now you have some lunch programs where uh, the students pay for them. And then you have some students that might be on what you call free and reduced lunch. So they have to apply. So then they get lunch for free or you apply and you get it at some type of reduced rate. So it's saying that all students would have access to these meals, they'd be the same quality meal and no one would pay. And the idea is there's a lot of stigma too around having free or reduced lunch, which why some students would not even use it just because they don't want to be bullied or, or look like that they, they don't have money in their family because we all know how children can be. Mm-hmm. And there's this also this idea that um, food should be essential. It's not like an add-on. Like if we talk about creating an environment for children to learn, food can't be this add-on, but it's a necessity because we know children can't learn if they're not nourished. If you're hungry, I know me, I can't do my work if I'm hungry. I have to stop everything, get something to eat, get coffee so I could just function. The idea that children that are growing don't need the same thing to be able to function and sit and take in knowledge is just unreasonable. And so it's shifting food from this like siloed add-on to saying it's an essential part of educating our children is access to food. So that's the whole conversation about universal meals. And what's really important to NFSN is the concept of values aligned universal meals. So we know if we move in the direction of universal meals, there's an opportunity to ensure that that also elevates racial justice, environmental justice, 
um, labor issues. And so there's such an intersectionality and there's so many organizations doing great work that if we come together, we can make this policy one that is a touch point for all of these issues and everyone can see themselves in the work. Yeah. It's always hard to fix bad policy. It's all, if you say, oh, we'll just fix it on the back end. That's the hardest thing to do. So we have the opportunity to do it right and to do it in a way that includes all of those other stakeholders. So we're excited about moving universal meals in a direction that makes sure it's centered around racial justice and includes economic justice, environmental justice, and labor rights as well. Break some of this down. So for, first of all, talk about your work in particular at the National Farm to School Network and how you're helping to realize this vision that you just laid out. So our work is what we started um, with a framework of bringing different national organizations together to co- create what we're calling this values aligned universal meals working group, right? So we've all come together to frame out so when we say values align, what will that mean? And that's where we framed out that environmental justice part, that economic justice and health impact, um, racial justice and labor and work, workers' rights. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing is we feel as an organization, obviously, it's not just our voice and our opinions that need to be elevated. So we did our due diligence to create the space to make sure we're bringing organizations like Heal and NEA, all of these stakeholders to the table so that we can work on creating a marker bill that includes all of these organizations, includes all of the values. Because sometimes what you'll see is that you have to sacrifice some another group's values or, or, or mm-hmm. an agenda, mm-hmm. right? So that another organization can move their agenda forward. So every time there's a fill, things are cut. Well, we're going to cut this, but keep this. Cut this, but keep that. And so what we wanted to do is bring this coalition together early for all us, for us all to be bought in to say, this is what we're going to present. And we're not going to sacrifice anyone's values or any organization. We're going to present this as a united front. Love and that. this is the version that we want to see passed. And so that's the what... National Farm to School Network has been doing, and we hope to also build a campaign of awareness because we understand we all know what universal meals means. And, and but to your point earlier, a lot of people don't know what this means, and they would be bought into it. They'd be asking for this from their elected officials if they knew. So the next phase of our work is trying to build an actual awareness campaign so that people can understand what is universal meals and why is it crucial and why do we need it. That's awesome. And congratulations. That's so important to have that shared set of values and to hold firm to that because absolutely as uh, somebody in, you know, community work, there's definitely always somebody whose values sort of get undercut uh, for the greater good. Uh, So I I applaud you for taking that vision and trying to move that forward. Um, Can you share any examples of success that you're starting to see? I think we're seeing a lot of success in our work on different levels. I would say we're seeing a lot of success on just innovation and how people are, are approaching this work. Um, because if you would have asked me or any of us maybe a year ago, if some of the, the tools and resources and ways in which we're distributing um, food were possible, we'd say, no, that's not possible. I don't know how that would work. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is um, school districts able to do this in real time and find different ways to distribute food. And so 
we have a lot of examples of expanding our garden programs, right? And just educating and really bringing those programs to people's homes. So some of the relief funds that we did as an organization focused on uh, organizations like the Sprout City Farms, right? That looked at launching a mobile farm stand in a food pantry in their community. Because a lot of times you have these mobile food pantries or excuse me, stationary food pantries and you have to go to them. So they said, why don't we build this system? It'll have cooling, it'll be environmentally friendly, it'll run like powered by a bicycle and we'll actually take this pantry and go to different communities in real time, right? Yeah. So that was one of the grants that we were able to fund, one of those projects. We also funded another organization, um, Sim Onward, that looked at two parts. One, youth engagement. So it was taught youth about how to build flower beds and um, gardens in homes. And then for free, went out into the community and built it for seniors and community sites and showed them how to um, maintain so it's this idea of like, how do you take the idea of like access to fresh fruits and vegetables away from just being like community gardens or food pantries, but to people's backyards mm. and to do it in a way that you had the next generation um, invested in it, learning a skill and they were paying these, um, these youth to do this, right? And that was another program that we funded. And then we also just saw um, schools stepping up to serve the entire community not just students. So you saw this in LA where they were serving anyone that showed up. It, they didn't have to be students and uh, didn't have to prove that they're, you know, had kids in the school system. Anyone that showed up was served. And so it's that concept of community schools, that concept of this school, the hub of the community. It's something that I think is the new wave of where we're going to see public education and that was an example of it in real time. The The resources weren't there. They weren't sure how they were going to be able to fund this, but they understood it was a need. They understood that their community was um, suffering and that they had the ability to do it. And I think those are the type of success stories. Now it's our opportunity and our charge as organizations to ensure that there's the resources behind these innovations so that we can do this on large scales so we've seen these kind of pilot programs, and now it's like, how do you institutionalize this? It's by ensuring that the resources are there on the national stage. And the resources, that's part of your work as well, um, getting that federal policy to, to turn the dial and recognize these community school partnerships as sort of the new norm. Um, mm-hmm. What's your hopes or your hesitations with the new Biden-Harris administration in terms of what you see for the future of this type of work? I would say I see opportunity with this new administration in the sense that I feel like there's a centering of racial equity that no administration has really tackled so prominently and vocally in decades. So I think there's an opportunity to have a conversation um, through agencies where usually agencies wouldn't even want to equity. They, you know, (laughs) turn the other cheek. They don't want to talk about equity, uh, let alone racial equity. So I think there is an opportunity to just have an open dialogue that just wasn't real before. Um, I think there's also an opportunity to create thoughtful communication with nonprofit stakeholders. I think in in the Obama years, it was, um, that was there. 
and that's something that stopped with this last administration, is really bringing the stakeholders that are doing, because you need both. The idea that just nonprofits can do it or just governments can do it is just not realistic. And so if those two entities aren't really talking together, you can't really move forward because both need each other. And so I think there was uh, no communication or communication that wasn't um, on the level it needed to be with the last administration. So I see an opportunity to to build back that communication. Mm-hmm. And I think that this new administration honestly might be open to universal meals in a way that we all thought was decades away. Like we thought this was kind of like a moonshot goal. And this seems really tangible under this new administration. It seems like something we could really have uh, and obtain. So I feel really optimistic about the opportunities with this new administration, just because I think there's a framework that we have not had, an openness to a conversation that we've not seen before. And so now, you know, the ball's in their court to live up to the expectations that they're setting out. But I do feel optimistic and, and are willing to give this administration the chance to live up to the framework that they're creating. Optimism, that is such a good feeling <laughs> that we have been missing. So, yeah, I yeah. absolutely feel that and hear that. Um, what do you want listeners to do to help? How can they raise kale? Right. Um, So there's so many ways that you can help. I would say the first thing um, is we have launched a new call to action that's really bold. And it's that 100% of communities will hold power in a racially just food system. And that work is going to take all of us. By no means do we think that that goal is obtainable by just NFSN. So we're inviting other organizations to take on this call to action and build it into your strategic plan, build it into what you're doing as an organization. We also ask for you to just learn more about us and the work that we do by visiting our website, farmtoschool.org, and stay connected and joining our newsletter. Um, But if nothing else, we're really asking people to be advocates for food justice in their community and that shifting power has to be an essential part of the conversation and an essential part of the work. So much of this movement is a, if we're going to be honest, it's a predominantly white middle-class-led movement. And if we truly want to shift power, we have to create space at the table to center the most systematically and purposely marginalized stakeholders who have been left out of the movement. And so just asking everyone to take that charge of asking yourselves in every Thing you're doing as an organization, as an individual, how does this shift power? Are we shifting power? Are we centering and empowering um, the voices and the stakeholders that have so long been forgotten and silent? Can you give a small example or two of what does that shift of power look like for a listener that wants to do that? I'll give an example for us as an organization, right? Because we're heeding our own advice of shifting power. Um, So we're going to be launching a new partner structure for us as an organization. So NFSN, historically, we are a um, predominantly white-led network in the sense of most of the nonprofit organizations that we work with um, are white-led, that we do not have a representation of predominantly BIPOC-led organizations. I want to jump in to add a quick definition for our listeners. BIPOC means Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And so a charge that we've made is looking at our partner structure, figuring out what were the barriers? Why did we 
uh, like attract a certain demographic or did, did certain communities not see themselves in our work. So we charged ourselves with addressing that by setting a set goal for ourselves to diversify our network, to recenter BIPOC grassroots-led organizations and BIPOC-serving um, organizations. And then we also looked at making sure that we are creating a system that is not top-down, that we create a way for grassroots organizations to lift up the things that they want to see from our organizations so that they can have a seat at the table of leading us in the work that we do. And so for us, for Shifting Power, we had to look at our network, look who had, you know, the loudest, you know, voice on our network, and really strategically look on how to change that. What did we need to do as an organization? Set a metric that we're going to evaluate ourselves um, on, set a timetable for ourselves. And so that's how we, as an organization, are shifting power. And I think for individuals, a recommendation I can give you just in your life is this idea around choice points. Mm. Um, and everything you do, evaluating the choice. And so a good example is if um, we were buying a Christmas gift as an organization, right? We, we buy gifts every year and we could just go to any vendor, but we specifically looked for BIPOC-owned BIPOC businesses to buy these gifts from. Like when we do uh, events, we specifically look at the types of vendors for our conferences. It's like looking at all these small things. And you can do it as an organization or as an individual when you're that whole campaign around buying black, right? There's a whole movement about that. That didn't have to just be the black community. There's so many allies that can be part of that. And so that's what I would ask people to look at choice points in their own day-to-day -day lives where they can elevate and make different decisions that empower and, and center communities that they usually don't work with or usually don't patron um, as a way in which they can be shifting power because you're shifting dollars and we all know dollars are power. Absolutely. Love that. That's a very specific example and very tangible. Um, I hope that folks have figured out some ways they can raise kale on their own in their own community. And is there anything else that you want to share that we didn't cover uh, that you want to make sure people understand about this work? The only thing I'll add is that NFSN is on this journey as a nonprofit organization that understands that uh, the nonprofit industrial complex is also part of the problem, right? And that there has to be this reckoning for all entities. There has to be a reckoning for government agencies, for corporations, and for nonprofits. And so what I, I would leave everyone with is that we have this opportunity to do self-reflection as individuals and as institutions and just asking everyone to do that self-reflection because it's not always about looking at, oh, the government has failed us or these entities have failed us, but then how have we also contributed to um, these systems of oppression? Mm -hmm. Because it takes also ownership and change behavior as individuals to do this work. And so it's something that we usually forget to do because it's hard work um, because we have to turn that lens on ourselves. But I think that's uh, such an important part of the work. And so that is what NFSN is doing right now, turning that lens onto ourselves and really looking at uh, internally how can we do things better as an organization, so charging others to do it as well. 
Absolutely. If we want to see justice in the world, we need to model it. We need to be held accountable to the ways that we move in and out of fields of justice. So absolutely very well said and so many great tips. I I hope that folks have learned a lot and I hope that they will take this to heart to raise kale in their communities uh, because school is school food, school lunch is so much more. And it really is about social justice and food justice. Thank you so much for your time today and keep raising kale out there. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to Crystal for sharing her story and her call to action with us. I hope her fight for justice ignites you to take action too. You can find links to resources on our website. When you look closely at our food system, you'll begin to understand how connected our food choices are to issues of social justice like these. Crystal's story is one of many more that we'll share with you on Raising Kale. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. In our next episode, I'm excited to sit with Chef Alice Waters, who pioneered the farm-to-school movement here in California. Alice shares how her life changed from a trip to France, where their seasonal approach to food forever changed her relationship with cooking, with farmers, and with school lunch. Join our conversation next time on Raising Kale.